You're listening to a Podglomerate original. Trigger warning. In this episode of Missing Pages, we'll be discussing suicide, sexual abuse, along with controversial mental health diagnoses. If this sounds like something you'd rather avoid, it might be the episode to skip. People love to laugh at a man in a dress. Cindy, you also work at The Gap. She used to, but she defected. Uh, It is true. I once worked at The Crap. For the After Dark variety show Saturday Night Live, it seemed like a go-to comedic device. Here now with a preview of her work is Maya Angelou. There was something about a male cast member in a skirt that got the live audience going. As always, you effervesce the sweet aroma of woman in full bloom. Thank you. That, that's good, right? Oh, yes. From Chris Barley portraying a Gap Girl to Tracy Morgan moonlighting as Maya Angelou to Will Ferrell as the deep-voiced U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno. Welcome to my dance party, coming to you live from the deck of a battleship. Psst, it's really just my basement. The gag never seemed to get old. And cross-dressing as comedy is nothing new. Even Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, from back in the 1600s, hinges on gender-bending disguises. As I am man, my state is desperate for my master's love. As I am woman, what frivolous sigh shall poor Olivia breathe? Oh, time, thou must untangle this knot I. Up until recently, Gender non-conforming characters were written into stories either as a punchline... Ah! Look at this! My first day as a woman, I'm getting hot flashes. ...or as the more sinister, transsexual, psychopathic serial killer. It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. Then there's Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. If the lieutenant is indeed a woman, as she claims to be... It's the 1994 comedy classic that launched Jim Carrey's career and somehow managed to combine both the man in a dress gag and the trans character as the sociopathic villain trope. Then my friend, she is suffering from the worst case of hemorrhoids I have ever seen! That's why Roger Pedactor is dead! He found Captain Winky! Two birds, one stone. To say the least, In the late 90s and 2000s, the media was doing a pretty terrible job at humanizing trans people. Transgender characters were either the butt of the joke or mentally unstable murderers. But my expertise as Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic and voracious reader, is here in the land of books. Books are the medium of nuance and depth. So you'd think books were doing a better job at trans representation, right? Right? Come on. If J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings books can dedicate hundreds of pages to Middle-earth's trees and still spawn a wildly successful film franchise, surely there must be a trans character in the stacks that got an authentic human treatment. Hmm, not quite. Up until recently, there were very few books about the trans experience. I can think of two or three. Maybe Middlesex by Jeffrey Eugenides, but that's really about somebody who's intersex. Or John Irving's In One Person, Going Back a Ways, Virginia Woolf's Orlando. But those books, while groundbreaking for their times, were not written by openly trans authors. Then, in the late 90s, a new voice burst onto the literary scene. Everyone from celebrities like Bono to Shirley Manson were buzzing about the mysterious presence of the one and only Jeremiah Terminator Leroy. He or she or they went by JT for short. Seemingly born out of thin air, the teenage author was notoriously elusive. And in a departure from the culture's perception of trans characters I mentioned before, JT's mysterious and potentially transgender identity only made them more interesting and exciting. 
Hey there, I'm Jeremiah Terminator Leroy. Uh, my, my friends call me JP. Marketed as semi-autobiographical fiction, JT's writing was all about a naive teenage sex worker trying to make a name for themselves at a West Virginia truck stop. It was playful, overtly sexual, and wickedly hilarious. Naturally, the gender-bending world of rock star musicians gravitated toward the cult of JT. In 2001's LGBTQ anthem, Cherry Lips, by Garbage's Shirley Manson. Shirley wrote the song about the title character in JT's debut novel, Sarah. One of the lyrics of Shirley's song is, that if such a body was for real, it seemed like rainbows could appear, which might have been a sign of things to come. It appeared as if the heavens had parted and an author writing from an authentic trans experience had emerged. The only trouble was... Sadly, our young wonderkind was too shy to attend star-studded book readings of his own work. But as I said, this air of mystery only added to the celebrity writer's intrigue. Eventually, as film adaptations of their books and requests to attend star-studded events poured in, someone claiming to be JT did step into the limelight. Then, almost as quickly as JT's star rose, in late 2005-slash-early-2006, a series of articles from the New York Times and New York Magazine revealed the truth. J.T. Leroy has been a publishing sensation since his first novel came out in 2000. All of his stories are described as autobiographical, which may be a problem because it's becoming clearer and clearer that J.T. Leroy is a hoax. In today's episode of Missing Pages, we'll share the wild backstory of what many regard as the greatest literary hoax of all time. Who was the real J.T. Leroy? Where did he come from? And even though the peak of J.T.'s popularity only lasted five short years, why are we still talking about it? Also, are we dealing with someone from the literary community or a rock star? Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome back to Missing Pages. I'm your host, longtime literary critic and publishing world insider, Beth Ann Patrick. You can find me tweeting about books, my dog, and G&Ts on Twitter at The Book Maven. In season one of Missing Pages, I'll be your guide as we look back at some of the most iconic, jaw-dropping, and just truly bizarre book scandals to shape the publishing world. In every episode, we re-examine the headlines and go behind the scenes to give you the unabridged industry story we all missed the first time around. Because isn't there always a page that gets cut from the final draft? On that note, we'll dive into today's episode, The Last Literary rock star. Chapter 1, The Hoax. I think many people were suspicious, many people in the literary world, and especially the literary world that JT was sort of making his way in, um, sort of queer, edgy fiction. The thing is, I, I don't like the word con, like I don't like the word hoax. Okay. I never said, I'm going to burst onto the literary scene. JT Leroy was the last literary rock star. It all just stopped happening after that. Are you ready to find out who the real JT Leroy is? Where shall we begin? Documentary filmmaker Jeff Fierzig dug into the complete origin story of the author behind JT Leroy. Released in 2016 and regarded by critics as one of the more morally perplexing and ethically ambiguous films of our time, here's Jeff talking to Vice about his documentary, 
author the J.T. Leroy story. Laura Albert was hiding in plain sight. So within the fiction that she wrote, she had left clues. So who is Laura Albert? And what exactly did she get away with operating under the identity of J.T. Leroy? I'm Lucas Seller, and I currently live in Los Angeles. That's Lucas. You heard him calling J.T. Leroy the last literary rock star earlier. Lucas spent the better part of two years sifting through notebooks and recordings to help Jeff Fierzig produce the JT documentary. One criticism that she um, experienced, I think, in the press was that, you know, she was making all this stuff up. Yes, you know, JT Leroy doesn't have a physical body in the world. But besides that, everything she said is completely true. In full disclosure, Laura Albert, a.k.a. the real J.T. Leroy, who, as you'll discover later, our producer has been in contact with over the past six months, was the one who recommended we talk to Lucas. And while he helps us tell this story, we have to remember he's also a close personal friend of the author in question. The timeline is such where Jeremiah, Jeremiah Terminator Leroy, you know, appeared as, as a voice on the phone in, I believe, 1994, 1995, between that kind of mid-90s era. And then in the year 2000, the book Sarah came out, the first book by J.T. Leroy. And then soon after, I believe it's the next year, The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things comes out. And those stories actually predated Sarah. From his work on the documentary, Lucas walked us through the timeline of JT's big career milestones as he remembers it. Then in, you know, the year 2005, um, Warren St. John released that article that had the smoking gun image of Savannah, who was, um, you know, the embodiment of the JT Leroy character. And then in 2007, Laura gets sued by... Um, a production company for forging J.T. Leroy on a film contract. Here's where we need to take a beat and give you, dear listener, the fullest portrait of what the J.T. Leroy hoax is exactly. Fair warning, this is going to sound like one of those serial killer tack boards. Who is J.T. Leroy? That was the last thing about writing Sarah. I think it was like this. I was in... It is more fantastical, like, I did create this in my head. There was things happening in it that never really happened in the South. If you followed cool kid pop culture in the late 90s or early 80s, the name J.T. Leroy was inescapable. Believed to be an adolescent, drug-abusing, transgender prostitute from West Virginia, Leroy's byline began to appear in magazines. Then, in 2000 and 2001, two works, Sarah and The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, were published to great acclaim and even greater fanfare. Book publishers had discovered a whole new voice. It was queer and subversive, and it spoke with the authority of jaw-dropping experience because, remember, the writing was marketed as fictional, but pulled from the author's real life. And in this post-Bill Clinton sex scandal-ridden culture... I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Early George W. Bush, you want a president you can grab a beer with culture. And I actually said this. <laughs> I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. People were just trying to keep up with what the definition of is was. Like I mentioned earlier, Leroy began hobnobbing with the coolest scene makers. Here's the then Beetlejuice star and now Stranger Things lead, Winona Ryder, talking about him at a book reading. I love you, JT. You are an inspiration and you have profoundly affected so many of us. The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things was turned into a movie in 2004, starring and directed by Ozzy Argento as J.T. Leroy's mother, the truck stop prostitute Sarah. 
Pay attention. It's not the little boy's fault. Jeremiah, you're going home. Your grandma's here. Then, scandal. By early 2006, articles from both New York Magazine by Stephen Beachy and from the New York Times by Warren St. John exposed both the actress who played J.T. Leroy and the real author of the work, Laura Albert. Here, Stephen Beachy, the journalist behind the New York Mag article, is speaking to NPR back in 2006 about his investigation of J.T. When I heard a story told by an old friend of a woman named Laura Albert and a man named Jeffrey Knoop, that they were in fact behind the whole J.T. Leroy hoax. It sounded plausible to me, and I began investigating it. I began looking into whether anybody named J.T. Leroy had actually existed. I couldn't find any record of him in West Virginia. Beachy is a San Francisco-based journalist, which is where the alleged teenage author seemed to have taken up residence at some point after living in West Virginia. I spoke to hustlers on Polk Street in San Francisco and uh, other long-term denizens of the neighborhood, and nobody had any memory of him. I checked birth records and started talking to people who had known JT from the beginning and couldn't find anybody who had met him before 2002 and couldn't find any evidence that he actually existed. There was no Jeremiah Terminator Leroy. He'd been the creation of a talented, seductive mother and former phone sex operator raised by Jewish immigrants in Brooklyn, who now resided in San Francisco, named Laura Albert. Laura convinced her androgynous sister-in-law, Savannah Knoop, to don a floppy blonde wig, big, dramatic, dark sunglasses, and a Pharrell-level-sized hat to impersonate the pen name she created, J.T. Leroy. Laura refers to Savannah, the person playing the author, as her avatar. To drive these remotely controlled bodies called avatars. They're grown from human DNA mixed with DNA of the natives. Yes, exactly. Only this avatar was living and breathing and going on press tours. But it went even further. J.T. Leroy's manager, Speedy. My friends call me Speedy, but... You can just call me JT's manager. The one with the suspiciously inaccurate Cockney accent? That was actually Laura Albert working the phones, traveling alongside her avatar to events and film adaptation discussions, and lingering backstage at concerts. And the band Thistle? The go-to opening act for those swinging JT Leroy book parties? Where, side note... There was a merch table including such cultural artifacts as imitation raccoon penis bones, like the one the elusive JT wore. It's a very small world. This is the penis bone. This is my talisman. I wear it every time I go out. Something special. Um, a t-shirt would have sufficed, but that's truly what they sold. Anyway, about that band, Thistle. It was fronted by a woman named Emily Frazier. Or rather, again, Laura Albert, only following a bit of liposuction and some new hair color. The band's guitarist was also her husband of the time, Jeff Knoop. Yes, that Knoop. So let's see. We have one, two, and three people in on the whole ruse, none of whom are actually J.T. Leroy, because that person is completely made up. What kind of person goes to the trouble to invent such an elaborate three-ring circus and then keep up the complex ruse for years? It sounds like more trouble than it's worth. What motivates someone to do all of this? The first thing you're probably thinking is, oh, Laura Albert made a ton of money and that's why this is so bad. Yeah, that's not exactly true. Laura Albert allegedly made only $20,000 off of selling her first JT novel to Bloomsbury, and even factoring in the parties, the movie rights, and the deal for the second book, we're not looking at a lot of money. Plus, after the true author was revealed, Laura Albert found herself in more than one expensive legal battle over identity fraud allegations. 
So if Laura wasn't getting rich, what was she getting out of all of this? Here's Lucas again with a window into why Laura wrote under the JT pseudonym. Yeah, no, I mean, I spent 16, 18 months of my life completely absorbed in Laura world. There's a journal that I found in Laura's archive that had to be when she was maybe 12, 13 years old. And it's like one page. And I think she wrote it in pink, which is kind of interesting. It was like kind of the only page that was written in pink. And she talks about this boy named Jeremiah, who is like suffering abuse at home. Lucas points to this journal entry in pink as early evidence of JT's existence within Laura. And that was like one of these kind of like holy grail moments where I, where I found that page and I was like, wow. So she was already thinking about Jeremiah, which JT, the J of um, JT is Jeremiah. She was thinking about this character already when she was 14 years old. This is like 40 years ago. And I thought that was so astonishing that she was already coming up with different personas and in her writing. It appears Laura invented the JT persona early on as a coping mechanism to help process a harrowing childhood. It also felt like this form of self-therapy that she was committing herself to, where she was able to speak about her own pain and her own traumatic experiences in a way where she didn't have to be herself to do so. And in the books, there's a lot of parallels between Laura and the J.T. Leroy character as depicted in the books where, you know, yeah, like Laura was never forced into um, sex trafficking or she never was addicted to heroin or any of those things, but she did, you know, for instance, you know, experience a lot of physical abuse and sexual abuse growing up in Brooklyn in the 70s. Here, Lucas, who, again, Laura introduced us to as someone capable of speaking on her life, extrapolates why Laura may have invented JT. And so she had a really difficult time being able to communicate about those types of those feelings. And now it's a little bit different. It's a little bit more, you know, okay for, you know, people going to therapy. Like, I think back in the day, it was a bit more like, oh my God, you're going to see a therapist. Like, you have to be like crazy. You're a crazy person. Like, why would you ever go see a therapist unless you uh, feel like you're uh, schizophrenic? Uh, you know, it was a different, different time um, completely back then. And I think very like fluently, she was able to find a way to communicate about her experiences through fiction, through writing about other people by, besides herself. And she would prefer using the, um, the male gender because what's more opposite than a female than a male? This all sounds pretty harmless, right? We're talking about a woman who used writing to process her trauma and also pranked Bono and some hoity-toity book buyers with a few dollar store wigs. Who cares? Why were people upset? She also had a, an amazing, completely alternative reality on the telephone. In fact, Laura's chameleon abilities on the phone were referenced in almost every one of our conversations. In the next chapter of our story, we're going to talk about that feeling of dread. You know the one, when you get a call from the person who always keeps you on the line for hours, but you feel guilty hanging up because they need you. Now, imagine if that person never existed in the first place. Coming up, Here's how the people in book publishing who got duped into hours and hours of phone calls with a non-existent teenage boy responded. Chapter 2. Playing with Fire Here's a quick recap. J.T. Leroy was thought to be a trans former sex worker slash teenage author who published two groundbreaking works of semi-autobiographical fiction in the early 2000s. But by early 2006, 
It was revealed that Laura Albert, an adult woman from Brooklyn, now living in San Francisco, was the real author, operating not only under a pen name, but also bringing on her sister-in-law to play the character of J.T. Leroy at events and disguising her voice as Speedy, the teenage prodigy's manager, and as Emily Frazier, the front woman of the band hired to play at all the J.T. Leroy book parties. Everyone we talked to mentioned how much Laura loved the phone. We just talked on the phone for like an hour and she was like, you have to read Sarah. So she's like on the phone constantly. And she was in the middle of a court case and talking to me on the phone. And when it comes to similarities between the invented J.T. Leroy and the real author, Laura Albert, she did have a background in sex work as a phone sex operator. I know you want to call me. Just do it. Call me now. Both phone sex and J.T. Leroy exist because of our very human capacity to want to suspend reality, wade into the land of disbelief, and give in to pure imagination. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Crisis hotlines, party lines, and early phone sex 900 numbers were big in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, right around the time Laura was growing up in Brooklyn. So it may have occurred to Laura then, or later on, that phone skills were not only an escape from her reality, but potentially a way to monetize her skills. For her, I think the telephone was like inventing fire because she was so traumatized at this young age and she had a really difficult time being herself in the real world. Lucas again, speaking to how his friend Laura used the telephone to survive. Her only line to the outside world was the telephone and she would use this thing I couldn't imagine. I remember like even seeing like a telephone bill from the year 2000 something. It was like a thousand dollars. Laura's background with the telephone helped explain just how the character of JT Leroy was first invented. You know, she would call party lines and she would uh, basically create these kind of personas. And at some point she discovered, you know, I well, during this time, you know, she felt, you know, very like suicidal because her life was like really horrible. Like her mom one day, wanted to get Laura to get out of her room and she refused to get out of the room. And then the mom took some sort of like kerosene and some flammable solvent and like poured it like through the crack under the door and then lit it like the smoker out, like fucked up shit, like really fucked up shit. The stories about Laura's home life that Lucas shared with us were bleak. From kerosene drenched bedroom doors to sexual abuse, it's no wonder Laura was searching for a life raft. And it's clear that, for much of her life, Laura's survival hinged on her access to the telephone. Uh, I couldn't imagine having to go through that. And so, you know, her life was basically hell, hell on earth. And she needed to find some sort of way to solve these problems that are stirring within her. And I think around this time, that's when she discovered uh, crisis hotlines. So she would talk about her pain, but she would have some boy character that she would create and call on those hotlines and talk about how she felt like committing suicide. That was her only outlet, was to go on the phone and call these crisis hotlines and speak about her pain. And it's amazing that she even found a way to do that because I couldn't imagine a scenario where she didn't discover fire and discover the fact that she can embody a different person than herself, uh, I couldn't imagine what the outcome would have been of like young Laura at that time, because you don't just call like a suicide hotline for fun. I mean, no one does that, it's fucked up. Uh, she was truly in trouble. In her late twenties, while living in San Francisco, Laura Albert once again found herself considering suicide. So she turned to the coping mechanism that had kept her alive in the past. Laura started calling a children's crisis hotline and reached a psychiatrist named Dr. Terrence Owens. Based on interviews with Laura in the 2016 documentary, author J.T. Leroy, Dr. Owens actually encouraged her to lean into the J.T. Leroy and Speedy characters. Laura said that it was his professional opinion 
that these alternate identities allowed Laura Albert to heal, process, and mission critical for a suicide prevention team, survive. So she was kind of like live writing along with being like suicidal. And she would kind of be able to feel good and feel okay after communicating, you know, some fictitious like analog of her own pain, which was always very similar, but she obviously changed the gender. And often these kids were, you know, street kids or, you know, drug addicts or, you know, experienced, you know, more severe pain than she has. If Laura only inhabited these alternate identities in therapeutic settings, that would have been one thing. But phones can call all sorts of people. JT Leroy, along with Speedy and eventually Emily Frazier, were personae that grew legs. It was picking up the phone to call New York City writers and editors, like Dennis Cooper, Ira Silverberg, or Mary Gateskill, where JT's charming but disingenuous West Virginia twang first started to get noticed by the literary community. JT's story of adversity, which was littered with morsels of truth from Laura Albert's own life, tugged at the heartstrings of our publishing elites. My dream is I'm a rock star and I'm Miss America and I'm a tap dancer and there's so many things I'd like to do. Listening back to the JT phone voice, it's kind of schlocky. Y'all, I live in Virginia, so I know a good Southern drawl. And that ain't it. So why did so many seemingly smart people buy into this character? Here's where we have to remember that most people operate in good faith. They don't walk around assuming other people use false identities. Plus, the swirl of mystery and intrigue around JT didn't hurt. Descending into a fantasy world of your own imagination is quite alluring for lots of people. Also, the writing was good. And for book people, there's something fabulously compelling about a true teenage prodigy with a fresh editorial voice who writes to overcome unthinkable trauma. But there are a few things that don't sit right. First, there's the question of time, emotional energy, and resources that normal, everyday people invested in Laura and JT. For example, Dr. Terrence Owens was likely correct in encouraging a creative outlet for trauma. Dr. Owens was running a children's crisis hotline in San Francisco when the nearly 30-year-old Laura Albert called as JT Leroy, her 15-year-old alt-identity. Was Laura taking advantage of a community resource built for children? Or is that a moot point since this hotline saved her life? It's tough to say. What we do know is that Dr. Owens spent hours on the phone with Laura and helped her survive suicidal ideations and self-harm. According to Laura, Dr. Owens viewed her alter, J.T. Leroy, potentially as evidence of DID or Dissociative Identity Disorder, which is more commonly referred to as multiple personality disorder in the movies or television. I'm Dr. Gerald Perman. I'm a uh, psychiatrist in uh, private practice. So uh, I've seen uh, patients with uh, uh, many different uh, psychiatric diagnoses. And in the 1980s and into the 90s, as many of you know, the diagnosis of multiple personality disorder became, uh, uh, got a lot of attention. To better understand and empathize with someone living with dissociative identity disorder, we consulted with a psychiatrist of more than 30 years, Dr. Gerald P. Perman. We'd like to acknowledge upfront that DID is a pretty controversial diagnosis in the psychiatric community. In essence, dissociation represents a failure to integrate aspects of perception, memory, identity, and consciousness. Uh, minor instances of dissociation, such as highway hypnosis, uh, transient feelings of strangeness or spacing out are common phenomena. DID follows a pretty consistent path with patients. And based on what Lucas shared about Laura's childhood, 
Dr. Perman corroborated how DID has the potential to manifest in trauma survivors. Extensive empirical evidence and research that's been done suggests that dissociation occurs especially as a defense against trauma. So um, people who are traumatized, whether uh, it's a childhood uh, trauma, sexual or emotional, or uh, in war, war situations, or people who have been uh, in, in a fire or something like that, uh, have been documented, especially occurs as a defense against trauma. Movies and TV shows present people with multiple personalities the dated term for dissociative identity disorder, as people capable of seamlessly flipping in and out of different characters. Answer me, why do people think that I'm you? If you want me to talk to him, just let him come to me. But as Dr. Perman explains, alts, as he calls them, don't operate like that at all. For Hollywood, it would be kind of boring to uh, watch a session with a psychiatrist of a patient with multiple personality disorder. We'd like to note here that Dr. Perman used air quotes around the term multiple personality disorder since it's not the technical diagnosis. There would be uh, tend to be subtle changes in the patient's posture, uh, their voice uh, quality would change and whatnot. And uh, it, uh, it may last uh, 10 or 15 minutes and then they might revert back or switch back to their main altar and whatnot. It does sound like in the circus of J.T. Leroy, she was able to turn characters on and off and recall interactions, which, as my producers found out, is unusual or rather implausible for this disorder. You're not going to see the person uh, being going out uh, in public, say, totally dressed one way for hours or days at a time. The next day, being looking and dressed totally different is just not going to happen. Generally, they're not going to be this uh, autonomous self that's portrayed in movies where they go out and do this and go out and do this and that in another personality. Uh, generally, we don't see that. This is all interesting analysis, and I promise I can completely empathize with someone struggling with mental health challenges beyond their control. Still, Dr. Perman's input only left me more confused. Why would somebody go to the lengths that Laura Albert did if it was all a ruse? And whether Laura's long meandering phone calls in character were DID or theater, I can understand why the people caught in her crosshairs were so upset. Here's where I really want to talk about the blowback, by which I mean both the fallout and the outrage. For Laura, the telephone was not only like discovering fire, as Lucas told us, but it was also a lot like playing with fire. And we all know what happens to a fuse once it's lit. There's an old saying, and it goes a little something like, don't piss off the people who control the media. So what happened when Laura Albert got found out? Well, that is the big question, right? Um, I mean, I, I, am, I do think I'm a defender of Laura Albert. Um, I, I think that um, she was railroaded. She was treated terribly, terribly. Um, by the press at the time, she recovered, and but there was a time when I felt this is this is a writer whose life is being destroyed. That's Mark Elliott Stein, New York City-based editor and founder of Literary Kicks, which has been running continuously since 1994. So you know, here I am. Suddenly, um, I'm the owner of one of the oldest literary archives on the internet, and I'm I'm proud of that. It's you know when I created it. My idea was to represent alternative literature, um, experimental literature, fun literature, rock and roll literature, punk literature. You know, I was never into proper, you know, I wasn't going to chronicle what The New Yorker is publishing. This was back in 2008, only a few years after J.T. Leroy's true identity was revealed and when Laura Albert found herself embroiled in a drawn-out legal battle over misrepresenting her identity. Mark, then writing under his own pseudonym, Levi Asher, examined whether Laura Albert's treatment by the media was fair in his piece, Can Laura Albert Be Forgiven? When I talked to her is when she was in a court case where she was being sued 
And she was in the middle of a court case and talking to me on the phone in, you know, in the evening. And I just felt, oh my God, fire your lawyer, change your strategy. You're being, you're, they're not understanding you. You know, like you're, what you should say is that I'm a fiction writer. She was writing fiction. A fiction writer is allowed to lie. You're writing fiction. <laughs> You're allowed to invent an identity. Um, you know, I mean, and some of this is what I wrote about on Lit Kicks at the time. But, you know, I pointed out from Daniel Defoe to Miguel de Cervantes, um, the great novels were all hoaxes. Laura Albert defenders make the legitimate point that all of J.T. Leroy's books were labeled as fiction. And lots of fiction writers operate under a nom de plume. In fact, it's a rich literary tradition. The fact is, a fiction writer is a fiction writer, and she's also a good fiction writer. Um, so she deserves the same respect. When I had a pen name, I found that people, people saw that as a reason not to trust me. That if you introduce yourself with two names, you're, you're showing yourself to be two-faced. And so it's, it's sort of like tipping your hand. In full disclosure, we did speak to the lead attorney on Laura Albert's appeal, which ultimately reached a settlement out of court. The lawyer took on the case pro bono because he believed a great wrong had been done, not only to Laura, but to the whole literary community by punishing an author for using a pseudonym. If you're lining up the evidence for or against the idea that Laura Albert was a bad person to create J.T. Leroy, you could take, you know, putting a wig on uh, her friend as evidence for, for the side that there was duplicitous behavior. My answer to that, I have to refer to the whole tradition of um, Andy Warhol, actually. Here, Mark is referring not only to Andy Warhol, the artist known for pop art prints of soup cans, and Marilyn Monroe, and the guy credited with saying, in the future, everyone will get their 15 minutes of fame, but also to Andy Warhol, the collective. Andy surrounded himself with intellectuals, artists, and deviant street kids. The factory, the place where all the radical, alternative creatives within Andy's scene met, was churning out multidisciplinary art under Warhol's name, but it was produced by a collective of people. There's actually a tradition of doing this in the art world, from Jeff Koons and Kahinda Wiley, both working artists today who have huge studio teams working on pieces. Kahinda goes so far as to outsource some of the painting to teams in China. Mark suggests that maybe Laura Albert was following this kind of production tradition. When J.T. Leroy showed up, there was no picture, there was a name, and there were a couple of stories. I was like, oh, wow, there's somebody here with a little bit of New York edge. There's somebody here who really knows Andy Warhol. That's one thing I thought. And when I say Andy Warhol, I'm talking about the Velvet Underground producing Andy Warhol, you know. And, you know, when I say edge, I mean danger. We call it an edge because you can fall off the edge. So, um, you know, I, I think that um, when I first heard of J.T. Leroy, I immediately knew this was a pen name. You couldn't not know this was a pen name. How do you get a name like J.T. Leroy? It's a first name. And the name was supposedly Jeremiah Terminator Leroy. There were other parallels we can draw between J.T. Leroy and Andy Warhol. For example, Andy was the original send somebody to the event in a wig on my behalf guy. One of the main characters in the Andy Warhol scene was, was Jeremiah Newton. So there's the Jeremiah. Um, and, you know, where it comes, what I'm bringing this back to the mask and the glasses and all that. One thing Andy Warhol used to do is when he would do speaking engagements, because he was a tremendously popular speaker in the 60s, he would he got so bored doing speaking engagements that he sent other people out with Andy Warhol wigs and Andy Warhol glasses to go appear as Andy Warhol. Now, it's a wrong, but it's art. It's art. I'm sorry. Art is art. Fiction is fiction. When you're a famous artist, Dolly can do what he wants. Picasso can do what he wants. Warhol can do what he wants. Another possible parallel between Laura and Andy worth sharing is that recent retrospectives on Warhol indicate the artist lied constantly, almost recreationally. But public knowledge of his dishonesty didn't destroy his reputation as it did Laura's. But maybe... 
Unlike JT collaborators, denizens of Andy Warhol's scene benefited with separate careers, given their association with the venerable star. Here's Mark talking about why the media response to Laura Albert's wrongdoing may have been a bit outsized. She was engaged in, probably had psychological roots in, in you know, trauma. And I, I, I believe that in her court case, now I never attended her court case, which I have described as, I think it was disastrous for her because she got, because there were a lot of reporters there just trashing her, writing articles, destroying this person. In her court case, I think she tried to um, explain her life of abuse to the jury. And for some reason, it didn't go over, and it was it was treated as if um, as if she were a liar when she was telling the truth, and that's that's really painful. The truth is, the wrongdoing wasn't professional; it was personal. Our producer Kayla actually found this all out firsthand. If I search Laura Albert in my inbox, eighty-eight messages come up. So eighty-eight messages between now and like the past five months or so, five or six months. To date, she's received close to 100 emails from Laura Albert, the author behind JT Leroy. But that's not all. We really didn't get on the phone until we started talking at the end of October. We hopped on the phone probably mid-early November. And these were long phone calls, Bethann. So they were, and they were not really like scheduled. So she'd be like, yeah, like, why don't we, why don't we talk this afternoon? And then I would call her and she'd be like, hey, I'm actually at the grocery store. I can't talk right now. I'll give you a call back in a little bit. Are you free tonight? And I'm like, sure. You know, you really want to be accommodating in order to build trust and like get, get people's feedback and hopefully get an interview with them. The hope was that we'd include Laura's voice in this episode and by doing so, share a balanced and nuanced perspective on the JT Leroy story. That's why Kayla got in contact with Laura. Now, journalists are familiar with the whole hurry up and wait idea when securing a source. But Laura Albert took it to a whole new level. I would wake up in the morning to a wall of emails from Laura where she's on the West Coast, so she could have been sending me, forwarding me things. And they were a lot of anecdotal things like, look at this interaction with this person. Look at the way this person talked about me. They got it all wrong. Like, And there was a bit of a we were on a team together. Like, we were on a team together dispelling this terrible narrative that had uh, taken hold of everybody in the culture that we could challenge. My producer experienced firsthand what editors and publishing agents may have felt more than 20 years ago when they first started corresponding with Laura, or rather, J.T. Leroy. I... I wanted to. I really, I really wanted to empathize with her. I wanted to see the scandal through Laura's eyes and understand, you know, what it must have liked to be in her shoes. But I realized when she blew me off for the second scheduled podcast interview in a row, and this was after like six or eight months by the end, maybe I had been charmed or duped or whatever like so many people before me and I just felt like an idiot and I I think my theory is that the payoff for her was that this game of cat and mouse where I was just always wanting a little bit more that was what it was about I mean finally the EP shut down pursuing the interview because um I mean, we're a small operation and this had been months. It was just, it was too costly and made no sense to keep pursuing it. Kayla got a taste of what all the people who had spent hours and hours on the phone with JT Leroy way back when may have felt. They no longer cared why she did what she did as a trauma response. They felt wronged for pouring so much time, energy, and genuine care into a person who never planned to be honest with them. And remember, women and non-gender conforming people rarely get a free pass in our society. So when the tides turned for JT, or rather Laura, they really turned. At the end of the day, whether you're outraged or a passionate defender of Laura Albert, we have to revisit the question of trans representation. 
Does J.T. Leroy's work belong in the trans canon? I mean, yeah, totally, right? More answers and more questions after the break. Chapter 3. Cannon Fodder. Have you all talked about garbage and how Shirley Manson was like friends with, quote unquote, friends with J.T. Leroy? I want to see when that one came out because for whatever reason, they're kind of intertwined for me. That's author Imogen Binney. She wrote the award-winning cult classic novel, Nevada. It's about a 30-something trans woman working at a bookstore in Brooklyn who tries to stay true to her punk values while her life sort of implodes. It's a fabulous read. So I took one writing class when I was in college. The rest were lit classes. Um, And in that writing class, there was... There was this guy who was, like, writing gay stuff, and I thought that was cool, but I wasn't out as trans yet. Here Imogen is talking about her own experience coming out as trans, while also trying to remember the first time she ever heard about J.T. Leroy. It would be a couple more years until I came out as trans. But I remember bumping into him on the train platform. I think I was probably going to take the train from New Brunswick into New York City for something, probably going to a concert or something. Bumping into him, and he was super stoked because uh, he was talking about this book. And in my memory, this is all so blurred together. I I, I should have put together a time frame in advance. But in my memory, it's also very associated with the third Garbage album. We talked about this earlier, but that queer anthem, Cherry Lips, by Garbage's lead singer, Shirley Manson, the lyrics and the story of the song are about J.T. Leroy's novel, Sarah. And this was one of Imogen's entry points to the world of J.T. That was part of what's exciting. This, this like, gay boy who I was sort of, like, drawn to queerness without really understanding, like, having really figured out why yet. On some level, I had figured out why and been blogging about it for a long time, but on another level, I had not. It was just, like, stoked on J.T. Leroy and the fact that Shirley Manson was friends with him. I have such a clear memory of, like, J.T. Leroy being a thing and associating it with that garbage album, and it seems like that time frame lines up. While working as a bookseller at The Strand in New York City, Imogen devoured J.T.'s work, but from the beginning... She wasn't convinced that J.T. Leroy was a real person or that the work was autobiographical. Here she is talking about the author photo on the back cover of Sarah. But it seemed like such a clear thing that like this is not a real picture of the author unless this author is a model who's like doing book covers or like art photography or something. And reading the book, it was just so clear that like, yeah, this was not like trans autobiography in any sense. Or if it was, it was like extremely, it was through some kind of like very intense filter. You know what I mean? Like just something about the tone, the like intensity of doing like truck stop sex work in contrast with the fact that like, even when bad things were happening, I feel like I was never super worried about this protagonist. It always felt like they were gonna come out okay. And they were like magic raccoon penis bones. Okay. So, if a genuine, totally real trans reader wasn't convinced that J.T. Leroy was a legitimate person, did that impact the value or meaning of the work for Imogen? It was interesting. Like, the the thing, the, the smart thing that I've been excited about saying for this podcast since we had the, um, since you contacted me, is, um, are you familiar with uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol Clover? Does that book mean anything to you? It's a nonfiction book from the early 90s. It's kind of a classic in like feminist horror studies. She, I think, came up with the idea of the final girl. If you're unfamiliar with the horror movie trope of the final girl, which I promise Imogen is getting to a really mind-blowing point here, it's the last woman standing to confront the killer, or more important, the person left behind who gets to tell the story from her perspective. He's right there! It's your turn to scream, asshole. In Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film. It's a strong title. Author Carol J. Clover suggests that audiences go from seeing the story through the killer's perspective to identifying with the final girl who survives, which is a powerful leap, especially when thinking about it as a metaphor for survivors of sexual abuse who've struggled to be believed. 
She's writing a lot about um, rape revenge movies. And one of the points that she makes that I hadn't realized until I read this book was that, you know, in retrospect, we tend to look at rape revenge movies as like pretty fucked up, like really intense and like, why would I want to watch that thing? If you're unfamiliar with the rape revenge genre, a good example of this is 2020's Promising Young Woman, starring Carrie Mulligan and Bo Burnham. I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? But one of the things she talks about is that at the time, like, sexual assault was not being taken very seriously. Um, and so having a movie that took it seriously and showed a woman having a, such a strong response that she goes on, like, a murder spree was actually, like, a pretty interesting decision in terms of the culture. And here's where, as I promised, Imogen brings it back to why the work of J.T. Leroy ultimately matters. And so, like, yeah, going back to my, like, ongoing look for trans representation and stuff, like, when Sarah came out, it didn't matter that I, like, didn't believe for a second that J.T. Leroy was a real person, like, at all. It was really, like, whoa, this is cool. These are, like, trans people who get to do stuff that's not just, like, you know, uh, beg for approval from cis people or, like, you know, tell a story about how much pain they've been in so that people will believe that being trans is real. Or, like, I don't know, these are, like, really strong critiques of trans autobiography at the time, but, like, I was pretty frustrated with the fact that that seemed to be the only voice that trans people could have. And so, in a way, Sarah really felt like it was taking trans experiences seriously, despite all the other stuff that seemed kind of wild or, like, yeah, unrealistic. So, for Imogen Binney, an emerging trans author, J.T. Leroy's work was powerful and impactful in a way that might seem subtle to the untrained eye, but meant the world to the trans reader. Sarah, and the heart is deceitful above all things, depicted a trans character who was more emotionally complex and nuanced than their gender presentation or sexuality. And as with the final girl metaphor, J.T. Leroy's books moved audiences to shift their perspective, to identify with the universally human aspects of a trans character's journey. It was Imogen's perspective that regardless of whether you think what Laura Albert did was right or wrong, her work undoubtedly belongs in the trans canon. I mean, yeah, totally, right? Canon is not about value. Like, things don't get canonized because they're good. They get canonized because they made an impact and people are still talking about them, right? Which is not to say, like, there's no value in Sarah, but, like, if you're talking about the trans canon, like, yeah, we're talking about books that made an impact and, like, we're kind of talking about, I don't know, historicity? Can I say that? Remember, context is everything. And if you recall... For decades, trans characters were getting the raw end of the deal on the cultural stage. For better or for worse, J.T. Leroy, or rather Laura Albert, inched our primitive cultural notions of the trans experience forward in a more human direction. And you can feel J.T. Leroy's influence when looking at the more complex depictions of the trans experience available today. I made my own couture. The popularity of JT and even the ensuing controversy ultimately nudged open a door that had been boarded up. By creating space to reimagine the gender binary and pulling the likes of celebrities and the literati into the whole ruse, it made a statement. Sure, nobody liked being duped and Laura Albert's path to publication was fraught in many ways. But, like Imogen said... It isn't about being good or morally correct. It's about its cultural impact. And J.T. Leroy certainly has had a ripple effect. Now that you know all about the cockamamie story of J.T. Leroy, it's time to check out titles with gender-bending characters from authors who to the best of our knowledge, have physical bodies. Looking for another angle on JTL? Girl Boy Girl by Savannah Knoop is that Savannah's memoir of her time incarnating JT. 
Detransition Baby by Tori Peters has quickly entered the trans literature canon. It's buzzy, funny, and occasionally scandalous. And of course, there's our guest image in Binny's recently reissued Nevada, which is extremely queer and extremely funny. Keep an eye out for Imogen's takes on a certain over-merchandised New York City bookstore. Wink, wink. Missing Pages is a podglomerate original and is written and produced by a small army. Showrunner, Kayla Lippman. Producer, researcher, and writer, Jordan Aaron. Producer, Matt Keeley. Production, mixing, and mastering by Chris Boniello. Fact-checking by Kathleen Henriquez. Legal review by Alexia Bedat and Louise Caron at Claris Law. Marketing by Joni Deutsch, Morgan Swift, and Madison Richards. Social media by Sylvia Butel. Art by Tom Grillo. Production and hosting by me, Beth Ann Patrick. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Podglomerate. Special thanks to Dan Christo, Lucas Seller, Imogen Binney, Donald David, Sammy Veeler, Kelsey Osgood, Laura Albert, Dr. Gerald P. Perman, Mark Elliott Stein, Stephen Beachy, Gary Steingart, Nicole Gagne, Joe Healy, and Alex Remnick. You can learn more about Missing Pages at thepodglomerate.com, on Twitter at Miss Pages Pod, and on Instagram at Missing Pages Pod. Or you can email us at missingpages at thepodglomerate.com. If you liked what you heard today, please let your friends and family know and suggest an episode for them to listen to. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, and we'll be back next week with another episode. 